Our sermon text for today is out of the book of Judges, chapters 19 through 21. This is our last sermon in our summer series through the book of Judges. I pray that the series has been edifying to you. It has certainly been to me. Um, since uh, our, our texts are a little longer in this series, we're not opening our, our message with a reading from Scripture. Uh, instead, we're reading much of the text throughout the message. So I would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Judges 19 through 21 and keep it open there. And you'll benefit from following along as I'll refer to the text quite often throughout the sermon. On December 17, 2010, a Tunisian street vendor by the name of Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire as a protest against the Tunisian police after they prohibited, prohibited, prohibited him to sell fruits on the street without a permit. Bouazizi died a few weeks after he set himself on fire but his actions initiated a movement that would become much greater than Bouazizi, his life or death themselves. His act of self-immolation gave birth to a movement that swept through North Africa and the Middle East called the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was an anti-corruption, anti government movement. It spread from Tunisia to other countries like Libya, Egypt, and Syria. And uh, through the protests of the average citizen, powerful leaders were deposed. But although on the surface, these protests were a response to Bouazizi's death, these protests actually revealed a deep sense of discontentment that already existed for a long time in the heart of the Tunisian people. A grotesque sin that brings about a national outrage and reveals the depths of depravity of a nation. This is what we're going to see in our text today. A nation without a king, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is our last sermon in the book of Judges. So let's think a little bit about the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a book of warriors. We shouldn't think of the judges in the same way that we think of courthouse judges today. These were military leaders, and God used them to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies. We've met all 12 of the judges in this book. They led Israel from sin to salvation. But they too struggled with their own sin. We sat through this book that uh, sin was a perennial status in Israel. We call this moral decadence. As the influence from the Canaanites grew exponentially in the hearts of the people, Israel had become Canaanized. And what we see at this point is that there is no distinction between Israel and Canaan. In the section 
in this book about the judges, we saw oppression and violence coming from other nations in Canaan. But now, violence and oppression are coming from Israel itself. There's no enemy outside. The enemy is within. The enemy is sin. Last week, we met a Levite who sold himself under the self-made religion of a man called Micah. Today, we're going to meet another Levite. He won't sell himself. He will sell his concubine instead in exchange for self-preservation. And this Levite's act of self-preservation not only will show the depravity of his heart, but it will show the depths of depravity of the heart in the whole people of Israel. I describe today's passage as graphic, gruesome, and gory. First-time Bible readers are often shocked that this passage is even in the Bible. I've struggled to find delight in preparing to preach this passage. So even before we dive in our text, I want to address the question, what is the benefit of preaching through a passage like this? First, I would say we don't choose what we preach or don't preach from the Bible. The Bible speaks for itself. And a result of sequential exegetical preaching is that sometimes we preach on things that we would rather not or that we would normally not preach on. Second, I would say that this passage is important because it deals honestly with the natural condition of mankind. The Bible is realistic. Friends, we often downplay the severity of the sins in our own hearts and we often downplay the severity of the sin around us. But if we were to read the Bible with honesty, we would see that sin is serious and grave. And the pursuit of sin leads to destruction. We see that in this passage. Third, and perhaps most surprisingly, what is the benefit of preaching a passage like this? Though this passage is a hard passage, the message of the gospel shines brightly through it. The message of the gospel often shines even brighter when contrasted with the background of the wickedness of men. So today I want you to know that even when we are faced with the greatest depths of sin and depravity of the human heart, we can always find hope in Christ. So we'll consider three points. Each point is going to help us think through each chapter in our passage today. The first point is a terrible sin. The second point is a sad result. And the third point is a foolish vow. So let us consider a terrible sin. For the third time now, in verse 1, we hear the line, In those days there was no king 
in Israel. Israel needed a king to lead them to moral uprightness. But the absence of a godly king had left them in a terrible moral state. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Instead of a king, we find a Levite who is not leading the people, but who is sojourning in Ephraim. The Levite had a dysfunctional relationship with a woman. The Levite had a concubine. A concubine is a relationship that we don't quite understand in our days. A concubine is not a wife, but it is not a girlfriend either. A concubine is closer to a fiancé, but more than a fiancé. A concubine would be a wife, but with lesser honor. Concubines are never explicitly condemned in the Bible. But when we read scripture carefully, we see that God strongly disapproves of any kind of sexual relationship outside of marriage. First, God defines marriage as a one flesh, not multiple flesh, one flesh relationship between a man and a woman in Genesis 2. And second, Whenever we see relationships with concubines in the Bible, we see great trouble. Take, for example, Gideon that we considered a few weeks ago. And his son, Abimelech, which was his son born of a concubine. And what was the result of this son? The result is that all 70 of Gideon's sons were killed by the son of the concubine. Concubines are not God's design. Any relationship outside of marriage is not God's design. God has designed marriage to be the relationship between a man and a woman for life. But this Levite and his concubine wanted nothing to do with God's design. The Levite is pursuing his concubine because she had been unfaithful to him, so she fled to her father's house. So in this story, we have an unfaithful man pursuing an unfaithful woman. He comes to his father-in-law's house, and there he takes his sweet time in open merriment. Living as though there is no urgency in life. Living as though he's responsible for no one. Living as though the hours and the minutes of his life belong to him and not to God. This man had no direction or determination in his days. He did not heed the words of Psalm 90. Teach me how to number my days. He did not understand Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. His lack of wisdom with his time displayed a lack of awareness of the days that are evil after several days, the Levite decides to leave. 
not at the brink of dawn, when it's safe, but when the day had already waned towards evening. And we start seeing that this man didn't just have a dysfunctional relationship, this man had a distorted judgment. Traveling at night left them exposed. He didn't love his concubine enough to make decisions that would be good for her. He didn't love his concubine enough to make decisions that would protect her. He chose to eat and drink for his own pleasure with his father-in-law a little longer and disregarded the vulnerability of his concubine. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. God has designed men to protect women, but this Levite failed to show his concubine honor by treating her as the weaker vessel. And as the night came, the Levite had chosen, had to choose between a Canaanite city or a Jewish city. So look at verse 11. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servants said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. Jebus was the city of Jerusalem, but we learned back in chapter 1 that the tribe of Benjamin failed to conquer Jerusalem and take it from the Jebusites. So at this point, Jerusalem was in the hand of foreigners. So the Levite chose not to spend the night with the Jebusites because he was sure he would receive better hospitality in the city of Gibeah, a Jewish city, and this proved to be a terrible decision. Gibeah was the city of King Saul, Jerusalem of the city of King David. The author is pitting these two cities together on purpose. The author wants us to see that kings do not come from Gibeah, they come from Jerusalem. The author wants us to see that a good king is not a king like Saul, but a king like David. So they've rejected here the city of David and chose the city of Saul, expecting that they would find hospitality among the people of Saul, but they didn't. There is no love of neighbor in Gibeah. So they found themselves in the middle of the city square with no place to spend the night. We finally find help, an old man, ironically, not from Gibeah, but a sojourner who was in town for work. He takes them in. But the story takes a terrible turn in verse 22, as we see here a depraved society. The depravity of this society revolves around men. Men who fail to be godly. Men who fail to take charge. Men who fail to answer the call of God in their lives. 
men are in many ways the moral thermometer of a society. You may have heard it said, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. This is exactly what we see here, weak men creating hard times. First notice the cowardice of the old men, starting in verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. This, is, this means they wanted to have sex with him. Verse 23, And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man... Do not do this outrageous thing. So here is a mob who desires to do homosexual acts with the Levite. But the owner of the house will not let them do it. So instead, he offers his virgin daughter. How absurd is this? How perverted is this picture? A father who is supposed to protect his daughter, giving her up so easily. You might have heard the parallels here with the accounts in Genesis 19 that we read earlier. Yes, the author is doing this on purpose. He is retelling the story using similar language to the language that was used about Sodom and Gomorrah earlier because he wants the reader to associate the two stories. He wants us to see how Israel has its own Sodom and Gomorrah and it's called Gibeah. He wants us to see that the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah has taken over the society of Israel and it's worse because God prevented the wickedness to be done in Sodom and Gomorrah. But as we're going to see, God did not prevent the wickedness to take place in Gibeah. The men of the city will go on to rape the Levites' concubine all night. And then they left her for dead in front of the house. Now I want you to notice the callousness of the Levites, starting verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he had opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. Verse 28, he said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up, and he went away to his home. 
after a fine night of sleep, after much food and wine, he wakes up and finds his lifeless concubine. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But not this guy. No, in his case, she gives her life for his. She was his atoning sacrifice. She died so that he might live. Friends, it is not supposed to be this way. Husbands are supposed to lay down their lives for their wives because Christ laid down his life for his church. This is at the heart of the gospel. And men who do not understand this do not understand the gospel. We do not live in a very different society, do we? Chivalry is dead. We're sending our women to the front lines of battle. The home is not a place of honor. Child, child rearing is outsourced and downplayed. We tell women that they're right to abort their babies from their womb because that is empowering. And if they do that, they will be just like men. This is a lie. And we must live in opposition to what our society tells us is good. You want to be countercultural? Love your wife. Be faithful to her. Protect her. Give up your life for hers. And you will be countercultural. And you will be a rebel in the eyes of the world. But in the eyes of God, your life will be pleasing. Man, you reflect your Redeemer when you lay down your life for your wife. Live your life so that she may flourish. Seek to do what is best for her. Choose the path of hardship so she can be protected. Choose her over yourself. Some of us may be called to die for our wives one day, but most of us likely won't. But the call to give yourself up for your wife is not fulfilled only in death. That call is fulfilled in life. It is the daily choices to love your wife that fulfill this call as though she was your own flesh. I want to say one more thing. For some in this room, this story might be particularly difficult and personal. Because you may have suffered abuse yourself. Friend, if this is you, which in a room this size, this is many of us, I'm so sorry about your suffering. God is not pleased that you were made to suffer I have been praying for you this week in a special and intentional way. But I want to say to you that although you might have been deeply hurt by others, Christ heals our diseases. In our pain and suffering, we do not despair. Instead, Christ calls us to bring our afflictions to him because he heals our wounds. So I want you to know 
I want you to know that you don't have to lose purpose in life. And if you turn to Christ, even the gravest sufferings of your life will be filled with purpose. And if you turn to Christ, you will experience a future redemption that will be beyond comparison, that will not be able to compare to the sufferings of this world. Turn to Christ and cast your burdens on Him. This chapter ends with a bizarre account of the, this, of the Levite dismembering the body of his concubine into 12 pieces and sending each tribe of Israel a piece of her body. His goal was to show to all of Israel the wickedness of Benjamin, and all of Israel responded to this action. So we're going to turn now to a sad result, the response of Israel. One event that triggered the response of an entire nation. In a sense, not very different from my opening illustration about the Arab, uh, Arab Spring. Because as gory and grotesque as the rape and murder of the concubine was, this event revealed a deep sense of godlessness that already existed in the heart of Israel. In verse 1, we get a geographic reference. And I've told you that geography is important here in these chapters. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That's an expression that means from north to south. Remember last week, Dan chased the, 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 the city that was no, northernmost city that they could go to. And Beersheba is all the way in the south. So this is... North to south, similar to what we would say from New York to L.A. This means the whole land, the northernmost point to the southernmost point, all came together. Israel was enraged by the evil that had taken place, so they asked Benjamin to give up the men who had committed such evil. But Benjamin's unwillingness to give up the evil men among them sat in place a terrible civil war, a civil war, brother against brother, son fighting against son. If you have multiple children, you know what great joy it is when our children get along. But you also know how troubled our hearts can be when our children are at odds. The children of Israel were at odds with one another. Look at verse 14 of chapter 20. And the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. Nothing is more discouraging than when children of God rise up against one another. Just imagine the power Israel had to fight their enemies. Look at verse 15. And the people of Benjamin mustered all their cities, out of all their cities, on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among these were 700 chosen men who were left handed. 
Okay. Benjamin means son of the right hand. So there is a little bit of play on word here. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. These are incredible warriors. Verse 17. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. What an incredible war machine. Israel, united, could defeat all the nations around them. But this machine is about to turn on itself. Remember all the people that have stood against Israel. We heard about them, the great enemies that they have faced, the Midianites, the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Philistines. Israel needed to focus on the enemy without. But instead, Israel decided to fight against the enemy within. There's a warning for us here, isn't there? The church is powerful. The church is mighty. But Christians need to remember that we fight not each other, but we fight the powers of hell. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus tells Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, that's the enemy, will not prevail against it. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary who is it the devil prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour friend the bible is clear about who our enemy is there's no confusion the body the church is the body that is called to unite itself and fight the powers of the devil but sometimes we the church can think that the enemy is the church itself. It is important for us to hear the warning not to be like Israel so that we don't destroy ourselves. Galatians 5, we'll hear about the freedom that we have in Christ. And then we're told, but do not take advantage of this freedom in an ungodly way. Because, Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Israel is called to image God to the nations, but they failed to do that. When Christian communities are filled with dissension, cliques, and bickering, they display a false gospel to the world. In his priestly prayer to the Father, Jesus says in John 17, 20 and 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. That's us. That's us today. Jesus praying for us today. Those who will believe in me, through, in me through the word. And what is Jesus' prayer for us? That they might be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. God in His triune nature lives in perfect love. The Father loves the Son and vice versa. The Son loves the Spirit 
and vice versa. The Spirit loves the Father and vice versa. And when Christians love one another, when we play in the same team, when we live well, even in spite of our differences, we reflect the perfect love of the triune God. Paul, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane, in their book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, they say, God is the only properly functioning community in the universe. And only when human beings live in community do we fully reflect the likeness of God. I wonder if you view other Christians as enemies. Perhaps somebody even sitting in this room right now. If you do, as a Christian... You're called to pursue reconciliation. That is one of the requirements that we have when we come to the Lord's table. But, oh friend, let us be united. Because when we are one, our front against the enemy is much more powerful. But when we are divided, we're granting the victory to the adversary. And our adversary is powerful. So we must respond to him in power. But this conflict within Israel was inevitable. In verse 18, Judah goes up first to fight Benjamin. Again, a battle of David versus Saul. But Benjamin kills 20,000 Israelites. It's almost as though Israel doesn't want to fight this battle. Look at verse 23. And the people of Israel went up, to, went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? This is a sad development. It hurts Israel. To afflict their own brother. They weep. They hope that the Lord would say, No, don't go up against Benjamin. But the Lord says, Keep going. The evil must be purged from Israel. So they go up again against Benjamin, and again, thousands of Israelites die. Again, Israel inquires of the, of the Lord, but this time they don't just weep, they fast. They offer sacrifices, and the Lord says in verse 28, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. So the Lord bets the battle against Benjamin, guarantees Israel the victory, and Benjamin is defeated. But in a strange way, God leaves a remnant for Benjamin. 600 men who hid themselves remain. But there are no women. There are no children. And no hope for the future of Benjamin. So now let's look at our last chapter. And let's consider a foolish vow. Our text today ends with a major theme from the book of Judges, folly. And the greatest mark of the fool 
is a rejection of God. Whether a denial of his existence, atheism, or altogether a rejection of his instructions, practical atheism. You can believe God and reject him and live your life just like an atheist. If you recall back in chapter 10, Jephthah made a foolish vow. He determined to sacrifice his own daughter to the Lord. In this passage, the tribes of Israel make a vow to not give their daughters in marriage to any of the 600 men who were left in the tribe of Benjamin. This would bring about the extinction of one of Israel's 12 tribes. Israel made an oath that they should have never made. What does the Bible say about oaths that we should never make? Perhaps you've made an oath that you're keeping that you should have never made. What does the Bible say about that? Leviticus 5, 4 through 6. Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, a foolish vow, or, an, uh, or a, a rushed vow, to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord in his, uh, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. In other words, never keep a vow that you shouldn't have made to begin with. Instead, repent. That's what the Bible says. This is what Jephthah should have done. He should not have sacrificed his daughter. He should have repented. This is what Israel should have done. They should not have kept their daughters from the men of Benjamin. They should have repented. Israel did not, however, know the word of God. They did not know the book of Leviticus. They did not know that God has something to say about vows that are done inappropriately. So again, we're going to see the pointless of an abhorrent oppression of women. Israel's first solution was to find a town that never joined the war, kill their men, take their women, and give them to the remnants of Benjamin, look at chapter 21, verse 8. And they said, well, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord in Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the Lord from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, no one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent. 12,000 of their bravest men that there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. So, so this is a genocide. This is what you shall do. Every male and every, every, male and every woman that has slain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. 
What a terrible solution. Filled with murder and abuse. Even the killing of children. But this wasn't good enough. They still needed 200 more women. So what solution did they come up with now? Look at verse 19. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of the Bona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch if the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us. Because we did not take from each man of them his wife in battle, neither did, did you give them to, the, to, to them Else you would not be guilty. So now the solution is to steal women. These women have become a means to an end. The society has used and objectified women. But why has the morality of Israel come so low? Why is Israel so depraved? Why is depravity running so deep among the tribes of Israel? And the answer is in the last verse of the book. Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. So everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel needed a king that would not be swayed by what the worldly or the world devices. A leader that would know the word of God and that would lead the people of God to obey the word of God. A king according to what God had prescribed in Deuteronomy 17. Israel would go on to find kings, some good, some bad. None like David, the man after God's own heart. But even David, in all his splendor, failed. But David had a son, and his name is Jesus. And ultimately, the book of Judges is about David's son, King Jesus. But King Jesus was not a typical king. He came to earth, not born in a palace, but in a manger, he was not pompous, but meek. He associated not with the strong, but with the weak. Christ never oppressed his people. He was the one that took oppression himself. Christ was a suffering king, but his suffering was not his own. He suffered for his people. Isaiah 53 verse 5, where he was pierced. For our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is the king that Israel so desperately 
needed. Christ is the king that does not break his people. Christ is the king who does not view his people as his atonement, as his protection. Christ is the king who takes on the pain of his people himself. Christ is the king who takes the wounds of his people, their stripes. And he does so by nailing all our pain and suffering to the cross. He is a king who dies for his people. And friends, we see in Israel the perversion of men. But in Christ, all that is perverted is made right. Christ is able to change the heart of man. Christ is able to protect those who can't protect themselves. Friends, the death of Christ is the death that we deserve. But Christ takes it upon himself to die for us. That can't be said of anyone else. No one is able to die for you the way Christ died for you. Because Christ died for you not just to preserve your life. Christ died for you to redeem you from your sins. This is the king we need. This is the king that Israel so desperately needed. Because Israel was depraved and broken because of their sins. So Israel needed a king who could do away with sin. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, he pays for the sin of his people. And friends, we today have a king who leads us in a victorious procession because we can follow him to a promised land where sin will be no more. Christ not only died, he rose from the dead, and he tells us, if you believe in me, I will raise you to newness of life in this present age. Friends, this is the kingdom of Christ, his church. We are victorious over sin. Yes, we're still battling, but friends, we know that one day, victory will be plentiful. Sin will be no more. The weak will no longer suffer. And all will be well. Society will no longer be like this. Women will no longer be oppressed by men. Children will no longer die in the hands of wicked men. Man will be godly. And all will be as God once intended to be because we have a king, and his name is Jesus. Friend, have you identified with the oppression in this story in any way? Let me tell you this. This story without Christ is hopeless. But when we see Christ, we see hope. Matthew 27, 37. As Jesus hangs on the cross, a great truth is said about him. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which was true. And read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is the king we've been looking for our entire series. This is a message of a king who gives his life for his people. And you may be now asking, how can Jesus be my king? And the answer is by faith. You must believe in sacrifice for you. You must cast your sins upon his cross. And you must trust that Jesus 
indeed paid it all. So friend, do you know the king? Do you know King Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we love Jesus. The leaders of this world are all corrupted. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. He is the true king. Thank you, Father, that we don't have to look for redemption in this world but we have the redemption of Christ. Father, I pray that in our suffering because of this broken world, we would not become hopeless, but that we would find the hope of Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.